been looking at the book of Hebrews, and we begin at Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 1. I'll take a quick review of what we've learned up to this point in Hebrews 1, verse 1, 2, and 3. We learned that God spake in the past in different ways at different times to men through prophets, uh, visions, other ways that He spake, but He's spoken in His last days uh, by His Son. And then He gives us reasons that Christ is qualified to be the spokesman. He goes on in Hebrews 1 to tell us that Christ is better than the angels, better than the prophets, better than the angels. goes on in chapter 2 to continue the thought that He's better than uh, the angels, better than Moses as well in chapter 2. And in chapter 3, he emphasizes the fact that not all of those who were delivered from their Egyptian bondage were able to enter into their rest. And he emphasizes how this physical rest that we read about in the Old Testament was simply a type of the spiritual rest that we long for as Christians. And he really has a warning there that just as not everyone who was delivered from their Egyptian bondage was able to enter into the rest because of their unfaithfulness, it's also true that not everyone who's been delivered from his bondage of sin will necessarily enter into that rest. And he gives several warnings in chapter 3 of coming short of that rest and falling short and not being able to enjoy that. And that's why it's very important when you get to chapter 4 and verse 1, he says, let us therefore fear. Let us fear in light of everything he said, but especially in chapter 3 now, in light of the possibility that we can start, uh, start our race, if you will, and not finish it. Uh, we can start the trip and maybe even get off to a good start, but that's no guarantee that we're going to finish it. And so in light of that, he tells us in verse 1 of chapter 4, Let us therefore fear. Let us therefore be afraid. Sometimes the Bible will talk about fear in a good way. That is, it may talk about a godly fear, an attitude of reverence or awe. And in that way, we're to fear God. I believe this passage here in, in this context has the idea of let us fear, let us be afraid. Let us have our hearts filled with terror. It's not that a Christian is supposed to live his life full of fear. That's not really his point. But in, again, in his context, and when he's talking about the, the possibility of falling short in chapter 3, we ought to be afraid of falling short. Let's look at Hebrews 10. We'll get ahead of ourselves just a minute and look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 30 and 31. For we know him that has said, Vengeance belongs unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord, and again the Lord shall judge his people. Notice in Hebrews 10 verse 30, Vengeance, not revenge, there's a difference, but vengeance belongs to me. I will recompense. Those who continue in their sin are eventually going to be judged, of course, and punished accordingly in verse 30. And again, the Lord shall judge His people. Well, we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.10 tells us we'll all be judged that everyone may receive the things done in his body, whether according to that which he hath done, whether it be good or bad. But notice in verse 31 of Hebrews 10, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So many people today, I don't think they really believe this. 
I don't think they really believe this. And unfortunately, I, I am convinced personally there are a lot of people who profess to be Christians that don't believe this. Um, but look at, the, look at the world around us, you know. Look at so many of the vile, horrible sins that are uh, being witnessed all the time, seem like. And the things that are taking place throughout our country here, and oftentimes even smaller children involved, and the people that do that oftentimes laugh at God. They laugh if you want to talk to them about the scriptures, what the Bible says, they laugh at it. They'll laugh at what, uh, what you try to tell them about even just the existence of God. And there's certainly horrible, vile sins taking place, and we see that. And I say horrible and vile. Some sins are worse than others. Don't let people kid you that. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, all sin is sin. There's no such thing as big sins or little sins. Oh, yes, there is. The Bible teaches that. And we understand that in other areas of life. What do we say in other areas of life? Let the punishment what? Fit the crime. If somebody steals something minor, and I understand it's still stealing, he needs to be punished. But are you going to treat that man and punish him the same way? See, as if he had, as if he had gone off and he's guilty of capital murder and killed three people? I mean, we understand even in life, let, let the punishment fit the crime. Remember, what did Jesus tell Pilate? Did he not say the one who has brought me to you or delivered me up to you is what? Guilty of the greater sin. See, there is such thing as big sins and little sins. Now, I'm not trying to trivialize any of it and say it's, uh, it's all, tri- you know, some of it's trivial and can be ignored. I'm not saying that. It's all sin. I know that. And it needs to be repented of. But certainly when you see so many of the things come, uh, taking place in our world today, in our country today, that would not have happened just not that many years ago. There are horrible things taking place. And I wish more people were afraid of falling into the hands of the living God. I do. I wish there were more people afraid of hell. But so many are not, are they? They're not afraid of Judgment Day. People ought to be. Now, I know a Christian doesn't need to live in fear. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about the one who's persisting in his sin and refuses to repent. Those people need to be afraid of judgment. They need to be afraid of falling into the hands of living God. But he says, let us therefore fear. Now, for, for are all Christians, though, we certainly, we're not going to live a life filled with fear, but for all Christians, we should be afraid of what would happen if we fell short and didn't enter into that rest as well. So he tells us, let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering to his rest, any of you should seem to or should come short of it. I'm reading from the King James says, who should seem to come short of it. That may not necessarily be the best uh, way of wording that or the best translation when he says should seem to come short of it. You might just think of it, the ideal of coming short of it. So he's saying, let us fear lest any of us would eventually fall short of the rest and not enter into it. For we have been evangelized also, in verse 2 here. You might think about, for unto us was the gospel preached. And I've emphasized this in the past. I'll say it again, though. He is writing to Christians. He is not writing to people who had the appearance of Christians. Certainly he's not writing to people who fooled God into believing they were Christians. You see, God knows the hearts of all men. These are Christians. 
And that's important because look how many times in the book of Hebrews he's talking about falling short of the rest and not receiving the rest that's been promised to them because of their unbelief or their fault or going back. And so in verse 1 he said, listen, there's a possibility that we should come short of the rest. See, once saved, always saved. Eternal security, perseverance of the saints, however you want to word it. Once in grace, always grace. There's a lot of different terms for it. Basically means the same thing. On the surface, it's a pretty comforting doctrine, isn't it? Problem with it is a very deceitful doctrine, and it's simply not true, not to be found anywhere in the Bible. But notice verse 2, the word was preached, but they didn't profit necessarily because the word was not mixed with faith in them that heard it. Well, we need to believe. We need that the word must fall on an honest heart. And so then when the word falls on an honest heart, faith should be produced, is it not? Look at, I believe it's, is it Romans ten seventeen? Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Notice in verse 3, For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Again, I'm reading from King James. If you read this, probably from ESV and New King James, I'm not sure, but I know if you read it from the New American Standard, it's really better translated. It says, For uh, they shall not. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. That is, those who do not remain faithful and those who do not believe, they shall not. And that really is a better translation. Again, in verse 3, he's not going to say, as I've sworn in my wrath, they entered the rest. He's saying, as I've sworn in my wrath, they shall not enter into this rest. Again, we can grieve God. Uh, we can sadden God. Uh, we can anger God. God is a God of emotions, many of the same emotions that he has created man to have. And so notice he said, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, if you're taking notes or writing in your Bibles or anything, you might write 1 Corinthians 2, 7 and Hebrews, Ephesians, I'm sorry, Ephesians 1 and 4 with that, talks about how we've been chosen from the foundation of the world. And again, in Ephesians 3 and verse 10, the church, and that was all part of uh, God's plan, even before the world began. It speaks of His eternal purpose. It's all part of the eternal purpose of God. For He spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, verse 4, and God did rest the seventh day from all His works. You could see that in Genesis 2, verse 2. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. Uh, well, I'm not sure where what the reference is in, in verse 5 in this place again or as it's been said I'll say it again in verse 5 if they shall enter into my rest um, some say it's probably a reference actually to verses 7 and 8 back in chapter 3 see seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein verse 6 and they to whom it was first preached enter not in because of unbelief and remember we saw in uh, verses 18 and 19 of chapter 3 that belief and obedience or unbelief and disobedience could both be used interchangeably. That is, a person who believes is going to obey. A person who doesn't believe obviously is not going to obey, but they're really parallel terms. Remember from chapter 3 and verse 18, And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not? Or uh, the translations were say to them that were disobedient. Then verse 19, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief or because of their disobedience. 
Now we're back to chapter 4. And he tells us in verse 7 again, He limited a certain day, saying, And David, today, after so long a time, as it is said today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Uh, in verse 8, again, the King James will say, For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? Uh, the better translation there is Joshua. The King James will translate that Jesus. And the reason being, it's not that, he, even in the King James, they're speaking of Joshua. He's not speaking of Jesus, even though I know he translated it Jesus. Jesus and Joshua are basically translated the same when you go to the Greek language. And that's why here in the King James it'll have it um, uh, as Jesus. But it is an obvious reference to Joshua. I think other translations are going to say Joshua instead of uh, Jesus in verse 8. And notice if, if Jesus for or Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. So what's the rest we're learning about in chapter 3 and 4? It's not the rest of the Sabbath. They've already had that. They've already experiencing the rest of the Sabbath. It, but he's speaking of a rest here that is future. So it's not the rest of the Sabbath. It's not the rest of those who entered in the promised land and received that physical rest. That was in the past. They had already received that. Again, he's speaking of something to come in the future. And it's, a, it's really obviously speaking about the rest that we'll receive in heaven with God. And notice in verse 9, that's why he said, There remains therefore a rest to the people of God. Well, they had this rest in the past. I mean, the rest of the Sabbath. I would say the rest that the Sabbath provides. They experienced that. They experienced the rest as far as entering into Canaan. In one way today, in its context, we experience rest today as Christians, do we not? How so? Come unto me, all ye that are labor and are heavy laden, and I will what? He says, I will give you rest. I think the rest Jesus is speaking of there is a rest that we receive now. And that, notice he says, come unto me, all ye that are heavy laden, heavy burdened. Burdened with what? See, physical burden? I think he's talking about those come unto me, all you who are laboring under your burden of sin. And I'm going to give you rest from that. So there's a way in which we enjoy rest now. But still not the rest Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is speaking of. Verse 9, There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that has entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works, as God did from his. In verse 10, For he... That is, those who are saved. You could, it says, for he that is entered, you could say, for those who are saved and entered, see, for he that is entered into the rest that God provides, or really the rest that God will provide one day in heaven, but he tells us in verse 10, for he that is entered, that is the saved ones, that have entered into the rest God provides, he has ceased from his own works just as God did cease from his works in Genesis, the second chapter. Now, is God working today? You know, is God active today? Well, sure he is. So when it talks about God resting, it's talking about God ceasing from those works within that context. It doesn't mean he's quit working. You know? I say that because... The book of Hebrews here is talking about a rest that we'll receive in heaven. Uh, what are we going to be doing in heaven? 
And I've got as many questions. Well, I don't have as many questions as I do answers. I've got far more questions than I do answers. We'll be worshiping. The Bible tells us we'll be worshiping God. The Bible tells us, you see, in other places we'll be serving God. Uh, heaven is a place so where the Bible describes it as a rest and that it's a relief from the trials and struggles of this world. I want that, don't you? I mean, I, I, I'd like to have a relief from the struggles of this world and the trials and, and, and the whole Lord deals of life. But it's not saying that in heaven we're going to have rest as if we're going to be inactive. Just kind of floating around on a hammock between two clouds all day, you know? Some people think, you know, you hear people talk, we're just going to be floating around in clouds, strumming our little harps and stuff. It's not what heaven's going to be like. I can't tell you exactly what it's going to be like, I'll admit. But it's going to be a place of activity. We're going to be worshiping God. Now, does that mean we're going to be singing songs 24 hours a day? Not that there'll be hours and days in heaven. I understand that. Does, is that what it means? Well, I don't... <laughs> I don't think so. I'm not excluding that either, though. But I'm not, I don't, I don't think it's that, that it either. Verse 10. All right, let's look at chapter 4 and verse 10. For he that is entered into the rest, or God's rest, the rest God has provided, he has ceased from his own works as God did his. Look at Revelation 14 and verse 13. How many times have you heard this quoted at funerals? Henceforth, blessed are they who die in the Lord. Why? He tells us in Revelation 14, 13, Blessed are they who die in the Lord, for they shall receive rest from their labors. Life is hard. This sounds like an oxymoron. I don't think it is. Life is good. But life is hard, isn't it? Life is good. I believe that. I'm not, I'm not a downer on life. I, I believe life is good. But I think we'd agree there are times when life is hard. And that's why he's telling us in verse 10, we'll receive rest from the toils and the struggles and the labors of life. Let us therefore, verse 11, let us labor therefore to enter into that rest. I think some translations will say, let us be diligent. And that's what that means is be diligent to be, I guess, laborious. Uh, you know, is it where we read about study to show thyself approved unto God? We think that means, well, that's why I need to have my Bible opened all the time reading it. I'm supposed to study to show myself approved unto God. And in fact, the more I learn, the more I know, the more God will be pleased with me. It's not what that verse means. If when it says study to show thyself approved unto God, it has the idea of being studious. What does that mean? It means you're going to be paying attention and giving forth the effort. And that's why the American Standard of 1901 translates that. Be diligent. Be diligent. Study. Be diligent to show yourself a workman there, not ashamed, and a workman that God will approve of. Now read the rest of that verse. And that's what it's saying. I know it says rightly dividing the word, but it's the idea of being diligent and studious. And that's what he's saying here in verse 11. Be diligent now to enter into that rest. See, uh, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief, I cannot read verse 11 and ever be convinced 
One saved, all ways saved is true. He's telling us, you be diligent to enter into that rest so that you don't fall after the same example of unbelief and don't receive the rest. Does not sound like anything close to eternal security to me. Perseverance of the saints, whatever else John Calvin wanted to call it. But as Christians, we need to be diligent. We need to be working. No wonder in Matthew, I believe it's Matthew 7, where Jesus talks about different gates. Remember that in different ways? He says, strive, does he not strive then to enter in this, this narrow, uh, narrow gate there that, that leads to the narrow way, that leads to eternal life eventually. He says, it, because it's straight, that is, it's difficult to navigate, it's narrow. He says, and few that be that find it. See, they're looking for it. They're searching diligently for it. Oh, but the other way that leads to destruction, and that does not mean annihilation, but destruction is in absence from God. This is a broad way. It's crowded. You won't have any trouble finding that road and going in that gate. It's wide. A lot of people going there. Uh, but to enter this narrow gate, we're going to have to strive. And we're going to have to put forth the necessary effort. Doesn't mean we're going to earn our salvation. That is, deserve it. Bible doesn't teach that. It's a mistake to teach that we'll ever deserve our salvation, but it's just as bad a mistake to teach that there's no effort involved. Bible doesn't teach that either. Have you ever thought about who's not going to be in heaven? You know? Well, we say, well, let's see. Horrible sinners aren't going to be there, you know? <laughs> Person not a Christian, he won't be in heaven. Well, lazy people aren't going to be in heaven. You know? Have you ever thought about making a list of Who's not going to be in heaven? Lazy people aren't going to be there, are they? Because you have to put forth the effort. Apathetic people, they're not going to be there. I mean, if you sin and you don't care about it, it doesn't bother you, well, you're not going to be there. It's kind of interesting. Make a list sometime of people that will not be in heaven. But look at verse 11. Let us labor. Let us be diligent, else we might fall after the same example of their unbelief. For the Word of God, verse 12, is quick. And powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest or made known in his sight, but all things are naked and open in the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Look at verse 12, the Word of God. Some people... Although I think it's a very few minority, but there are some people who will say the word of God here is a reference to Jesus Christ. As in John 1 1, in the, word, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now in John 1, it is a clear reference to Jesus Christ. He goes on the rest of the chapter, and the, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, obviously a reference to Christ. In verse 12 of Hebrews 4, the Word is talking about the Word of God. It's talking about simply the Scriptures. However you want to, the inspired, God-breathed Word that He's given us, the Scriptures, your Bible, however you want to look at it. And now He's telling us, though, why, why is all of a sudden, He's telling us in verse 11, be diligent to enter into this rest, and then all of a sudden in verse 12, He's telling us about the Word. Because, how are you going to be judged? But by the word. Is that in John 12, 48, I think? Look it up. I think that's where it is. In John 12, 48, you're going to be judged by the word. 
And I think that's why he's connecting the two here, the, the possibility of being of falling into unbelief and not entering the rest in verse 11. He's connecting that with the word that will judge us in verse 12. The word of God is quick. That doesn't mean fast. It means it's alive. People need to understand that too. All these people that are laughing at God today, and they're laughing at the Bible today, and they're reveling in their sin, and they're so confused in their sin. They don't even know whether they're male or female or somewhere in between and all this. They need to study this with an honest and sincere heart. And some people will tell you, oh, you know what, this? This, this is like a, it was good in its day, but not anymore. I mean, that old book, eh, that's all right for you. But it's, it's, it's so out of date. It, what, a, what a sad idea that is. The Bible tells us it's word of God is quick. I've written, well, actually I've written, I've written and I've read a lot of obituaries. I've never read an obituary yet for the Bible of you. It's not dead. It's still alive. Man's got the same problem today. Sin. It's got the same solution to that problem. Jesus Christ. And that's revealed to us today in the same way it always was. Through God's Word, the Scriptures. It's quick. It's alive. It's powerful. It can take the hardest heart, you see, and break it. Like, take the heart like a stone and as a hammer would break it. And it crushes it, we read about in Jeremiah. Look at Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it, it alone, it and nothing else is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believes it. It's an interesting way he describes this in verse 12 though now. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, that is our inward man, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the of thoughts and intents of the heart. Why is he talking about the joints and the marrow? I mean... What does your Bible tell you when you read it about your joints? You know, and the marrow and the bones. What does your Bible tell you about that? Nothing, I suppose. But many say that the writer of Hebrews now is sort of using this language metaphorically going back to the sacrifices under the old law. Because under the sacrifices of the old law, the skin's removed from the animals. It's cut and the organs are removed. The sacrifice is cutting into pieces as the word of God is sharp as a two-edged sword. And when this sacrifice is offered to God, now the skin's removed, the organs are removed, the chest bone is cut, spread open, separated into pieces, and you see the bones and the marrow. The point is, everything there is exposed. God can see this sacrifice in its entirety. It's all there for the viewing, if you will. It's exposed. And some have say he's using that language here, really referring back to that figuratively, and I think that's probably right. Because what's he telling in verse 12? If you want to look at your life as a sacrifice to God, Romans 12, 1 and 2, and if you want to look at John 12, I believe 48, and look how the Word is that which is going to judge us. He's telling us in verse 12, the Word exposes everything about you. How do you, how do you compare, see, to the Word of God? How does your life hold up to what you're reading and hearing in the Scriptures? You know, how does it compare? And basically, there's nothing that can be hidden. The Bible tells us how we ought to live. 
that's your standard. We know whether we're up to that, whether we're living that way or not. That's why you get to verse 13. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest. Manifest simply made known. Made known. It's visible or made known. See, there's no creature that is not made known in God's sight. But all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of God with whom we have to do. Seeing then we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Why? Well, he's been telling us so far the, the danger of unbelief and not entering into the rest. Verse 15, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. And by the way, it was possible for Christ to sin. That may sound obvious to us. People get in this big discussion. Here's God living in the flesh. Was it really possible for him to sin? And some people, some people say, no, it wasn't possible for him to sin. God couldn't have sinned. Um, he was God living in the flesh. You can't be tempted to do something you cannot do. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a temptation. Certainly, it was possible for Christ to have sinned, but he didn't. And that's what's good. He tells us then, he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly or confidently into the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, verse 16, one last comment about verse 15. He was sinned just like we've been sinned. We have, let me rephrase that, please. He was tempted like we've been tempted. He didn't sin. But he was tempted like we've tempted, like we have been tempted. Why is that important? Is God going to judge us come judgment day? Sure he will. But how so, 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that which he had done, whether it be good or bad. God is going to judge us through the agency of Christ. It's Christ who lived here. It's Christ who walked on this earth. It's Christ who was tempted. It's Christ who knows what he's like. None of us can go to judgment day. God, you just don't know. Because we'll be judged by the son who lived here and was tempted and knows.